Welcome to another edition of Rick and Bubba University, the podcast. Professor Burgess and Bussy here again. Uh, Bubba, this is a topic today. I mean, it's almost like you can never exhaust the topic of Bo Jackson. I mean, you can't. No, you no mean matter. the world's greatest athlete? The world's greatest athlete. Um, and Jeff Perlman, uh, New York Times bestselling author, uh, he's, uh, he's wrote nine books, including The Bad Guys One, Boys Will Be Boys, Showtime, and Sweetness. Of course, Showtime was the source of HBO's winning time. Uh, he's got uh, um, you know all kinds of connections as a, as a sports journalist and, of course, as I just told you, an author, Sports Illustrated, uh, senior writer and former ESPN col- columnist, and, and it just goes on and on. So I spent some time with the Tennessean. Uh, he helps with Bleacher Report, CNN.com, blogs. He's done it all. Uh, JeffPerlman.com is his website. And now today on Rick and Bubba University, we discuss the last folk hero the life and myth of Bo Jackson. Jeff Perlman, welcome to Rick and Bubba University. How are you, buddy? I'm good. Thanks for thanks for having me on. Um, I told Bubba when you reached out to me uh, at first. You know, being born and raised in Alabama, it's not uncommon for someone to call and ask you, "Hey, now didn't you play against Bo Jackson?" Uh, so at first, I just thought, "Well, this is just somebody in the audience or somebody uh, local who's asking this question." And, you know, it, it didn't take me long to, to research you. And I'm like, hey, wait a minute. Th- this is a guy who uh, has, a, has an incredible pedigree here, and, and he's wanting to find out more about Bo Jackson. So what drew you to this, Jeff? Let's start there. You know, it's funny. I, I was wondering, like, you guys grew up around Bo Jackson, near Bo Jackson on oh, the yeah. same turf. And I grew up in New York, and I loved Bo Jackson. Like, I was a diehard, diehard Bo Jackson fan. I had the posters on the wall. <laughs> Everything about Bo Jackson was, was mythical to me. And I don't even know if you guys realize how, how maybe you do, how how far his reach extended, where, like, you could be a kid in New York and you knew all about Auburn because you loved Bo, and you knew all about Georgia because you knew about Herschel Walker, and that those guys were icons. So, for me, it was an enormous deal, and and just the – you started hearing stories about Bo and the kind of stories you say, is that even possible? He Could he have run a four, one, three? Is that even possible? Is it possible? He hit a baseball in a game that by the time it came down, he was rounding third. Like, are these <laughs> things even possible? And the fact that he vanished and just sort of went off into the abyss makes it, you know, he just has this folk hero, Paul Bunyan kind of quality to him. So I, I just was really fascinated by it all. Well, it, for us, you're right. It is different. And, and I think sometimes we forget that at one time he was one of the biggest Endorsers and the most, uh, I mean, his trademark it was iconic. You Bo, mean Bo Nose? Bo Nose and yep. multi sport athlete and all this. But here, and you and I discussed this a little bit when we were going back and forth. For, for us, it literally worked like this Vincent Jackson plays for McAdory High School. And you remember in those days, Jeff, the, the recruiting and all that, there was no hype around it. You yeah, never no. heard of Bo Jackson, you never heard of Herschel Walker or any phenomenal player until they did something on the college field usually on television you know and, and up to that nothing there were there were no Bo Jackson didn't have a press conference when he decided to go to Auburn uh Herschel didn't have a press conference when he was going to Georgia we didn't know if you didn't play against them in high school you didn't know who they were until they did something on the college field and so I can remember him being ended up at Auburn, I didn't think that much about it. Uh, I told you the story about his senior year, and there was there was a little more to that. And so I was getting recruited by Auburn, and my brother and I went on a visit, 
and we're sitting there, you know, at the Auburn game, and all of a sudden you hear now coming into the game, you know, number 34, Vincent Jackson. There was no bow. And I remember looking at my brother going, hey, they're putting in that guy from McAdory. I mean, that's yeah. that's all there really was. I mean, the, these legends might have been going on at his high school, but for those of us that just played him in a couple of regular season games over two years, we just go, oh, that's that guy from, from McAdory. And I remember they put him in, and they, they, they pitched it to him and told, basically like, like run to the furthest blocker. And, of course, he takes off, and he goes airborne over someone – at about the two or three yard line, of course, you know, in the mythical world, it was like from the five. Well, but, no, but Rick, it, it, I did, it, I did see him it, go airborne, it, and I, I'm telling you, it was just inside the ten, right? <laughs> over two Nebraska defenders, and uh, I, I thought, I, I thought the guy could fly. Yeah, but I remember Jeff when I was at that game on that recruiting visit because I was one year behind him in school. There was a moment in Jordan Hare Stadium where there was no sound. I mean, you literally, it was quiet, and then when he landed in the end zone, there was a moment where you almost, and I'm sure it wasn't very long, but it seemed like that everybody had to look at the person next to them and go, did I just see that? Because of his size and everything, you know? And then all of a sudden, it was mania, and then after that, I don't know how they figured out, and you talk about it, I'm sure you studied this, uh, this bow thing then began, the first time I saw a bumper sticker uh, in orange and blue that said, go, bow, go. And that's the very first time I ever heard the Bo thing. And after that, it left being Vincent Jackson to Bo Jackson. So you're right. It's a, it's a different experience growing up in the state where he was and you know, and seeing him run track at the state track tournament at our high school because we had the biggest stadium, one of the biggest stadiums in the state uh, in the Birmingham metro area. So that's where we had the state tournament. So I, I saw him run the 100 you know, at 6'2", 220, and just walk off and leave everybody. You know, we, we actually saw these things. So you're right. It's a different perspective for, for those of you that weren't from this culture. I think it's funny that um, entering Auburn, he was the fifth biggest recruit. He was ranked fifth overall in the state of Alabama. And Auburn got the number one guy who was Alan Evans, who was a running back out of Enterprise High School. And he really was the talk that number one recruit in the country was Marcus Dupree from Philadelphia, oh, Mississippi. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the number two running back recruit in America was Alan Evans from Enterprise High School. And he shows up at Auburn and everyone's talking about Allen. They got Allen Evans. They got Allen Evans. Allen Evans was like Barry Sanders, you know, ask that kind of runner. Yeah. And, you know, I talked to guys at Auburn who were, you know, on those teams and they said for about a day or two, it was all about Allen Evans. And then they kind of just figured out Allen Evans and Bo Jackson comes along. There was a practice when um, they played a, an inner squad game and Donnie Humphrey, who you guys probably remember was a really good player, defensive end on, on Auburn. Oh yeah. Defensive lineman. And, um, Bo just lights him up in a game. And afterwards, Humphrey, who is a big, mean guy, comes up to Bo and he's like, you are the truth, man. And that was kind of it. Alan Evans wound up transferring to uh, Chattanooga. And Bo Jackson became this this thing very quickly. Well, And, and Jeff, yeah. kind of my side of that, I had a, a good friend that I played basketball and baseball with that was recruited by Auburn to be a kicker, a punter. Yeah, And, uh, and I got to know the Bo – history and 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 the bow world through him and uh he was telling me before the season ever started he said just wait till you see this this bow on the field said it's going to be you know and and you hear those kind of things every now and then but once he got in and you saw again that size and that quickness and then we were at the nebraska game when he did this leap which you don't see footage of by the way i don't know if they just didn't video and we asked Bo about that uh 
when we were interviewing him at a golf tournament and he said, you know, they just didn't video everything like they do now. But I'm telling you, he left the ground just one step inside the 10 yard line and flew into the end zone. And and we were all just looking around going, that is not humanly possible. But everybody's kind of got a bow story like that. Yeah. And we come back. I want to talk, Jeff, about, you know, because looking at this, this is such an, a comprehensive look at this topic that many have scraped, but you really dive in 720 different interviews and, and want to talk about some of the things that, and how you went about it. Uh, and some of the discoveries uh, that no one really has has ever talked about when we come back, uh, when Rick and Bubba University, the podcast, continues. This is the Rick and Bubba Show. Watch more at blazetv.com slash Rick and Bubba. Rick and Bubba, Rick and Bubba. Now, now, Bubba, you threatened that you were going to show everybody your Tommy John underwear today. Do I need to model it for uh, everybody? Because I, I, I have it on. I don't think anybody wants to see that. I mean, it, it's uh, you already saw me ride a motorcycle I today. Did, I did. That I, was enough. Wasn't I, it? I, and, and I felt bad for the motorcycle. Yeah. But um, but Tommy John, uh, here's here's how it sums it up. They say if if Tommy John is if they're not the most comfortable underwear you've ever worn, then you get your money back. Uh, it's it's got to be the best pair you ever wear, or it's free, and that's guaranteed. And they are designed. Now they do have some items, some loungewear, and some some stuff for women. But it's the men's underwear that, that, that to me really stands out because you know that they know that uh, you know that men and women are equal, but they're not the same. And so the the, the breathable, lightweight fabric, four times the stretch of competing brands, uh, they come with the no wedgie guarantee. I'm thankful for that. Uh, the non-rolling waistband, we're both thankful for that. Uh, legs never ride up, really thankful for that. Yeah. Uh, and, and they feature that horizontal quick draw fly, and, uh, and, and that's great too. Uh, you know, the hammock pouch, uh, you know, uh, it supports – uh, you know, uh, uh, because of the way men are made, uh, so it, it's just so very comfortable. And they don't—they don't have customers; they have fans. Get yours now, twenty percent off at TommyJohn.com/slash/RickBubba. Let's put our ga- our names together. Twenty percent off at TommyJohn.com/slash/RickBubba. Jeff Perlman is our guest. The book, "The Last Folk Hero: The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson." So, Jeff, when you started this, seven hundred and twenty interviews. Uh, because you know, you think about there's been documentaries done. Uh, there's been some attempts at taking on this this legend of Bo Jackson, but you really went comprehensive. You you really went all in. Tell us about that process and what you discovered. Well, um, he's a guarded guy. You know, he's very guarded. Yeah. He's not. I mean, you guys know he's he can definitely be prickly. Yeah, yeah. And a little standoffish. He's not that easy. And I actually early on in the process. I send him a couple of my books and a note saying, you know, I would love to talk to you and you're a big admirer of yours. And he called me one day in 2020. I was in my backyard. It was, you know, during the heart of the pandemic. And he uh, he was really nice. And he's like, you know, I don't have a problem with you doing the book, but I really I get asked to do things all the time. I just don't really want to be involved. And that was fine. That happens as a biographer. And I got really lucky. Um, he wrote a book in 1990 called Bo Knows Bo. It was his autobiography. And he did it with Dick Shap. And before Dick Shap died, he donated the entirety of his research to the Auburn Library. And I'm pretty sure for 30 years it sat in the basement, but it's all the audio recordings from his Bo Knows Bo interviews, all the transcript typed out, notes to the publisher back in, it was probably wow. 500 pages of interviews that most of which had never been used before, never been seen before. 
Um, and that was amazing. And then it was a lot of time I went to Bessemer. Um, it was the first place I went when people started flying again. I went to Bo Jackson's uh, house on Butler Avenue. I actually walked up and down the street, was knocking on doors, interviewing people who knew him. <laughs> uh, old coaches, you know, Hal Baird, Pat Dye, sadly died by before I started working on this, but I spoke with his son. Uh, Lionel James, before he died a few months ago, teammate after teammate after teammate. I just really want, honestly, the biggest thing for me, especially with high school, is I wanted to talk to people who saw things that, as you alluded to, were never recorded. You know, like there was a story of a game against Fairfield High where he was playing baseball and he hit a ball so high to left field. By the time it came down, he was rounding third. And I thought that sounded preposterous. Like that doesn't make any sense. But people kept telling me about it, telling me about it. And finally, I talked to Eddie Scott, Fairfield High's left fielder in 1982. And he swore to me it was true. The ball went so high, he <laughs> lost it. It was the highest ball he's ever seen hit. Comes down, he picks it up. He looks to throw to second and Bo is rounding third. So I just really wanted to talk to as many people as possible, as many witnesses to the mythology. Yeah, and Bubba makes a good point. I mean, he he came in an era that that we we don't near. I mean, the documentation was not near what it is now. Think of how many things we would have now if yeah. if, if if he if he were you know playing modern day, uh, because uh, a lot of things were missed. Um, now I notice you you do say in the book. You're you're trying to say you know here's what we can document. I love that you interview so many people because just like you know the famous Kansas City Royals throw from 400 feet uh, to Harold Reynolds who thinks that his teammate is joking when he's telling him to slide, and it yeah. was a, and it one thing you brought up that I did not know it was actually a hit and run. He was already playing off and they didn't even throw over and 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 so he's got a jump plus he's extremely fast. But you really tried to get on that field and interview as many people that were on that field as you could, and it really painted a picture of it in much more detail than what I'd ever seen or heard before. Well, I love that the um, the the third base coach for the Mariners, Bob Didier, the the play happens. Harold Reynolds is called out, and Didier and the uh, the manager uh, Jim Lefebvre are screaming at the umpire. They're screaming at the umpire. And I thought they were screaming and they were arguing that he should have been, he was, uh, he was safe. But I talked to Bob Didier, the third base coach, and he said, no, we were screaming because the, uh, the home plate umpire was 30 feet up the line. <laughs> and the reason he was 30 feet up the line is because nobody thought there was a play at the plate. The guys in the dugout, I talked to a lot of guys in the dugout, like Charlie Lieberman was a pitcher um, on the Royals. And he said they were all just walking off, you know, because they knew there was no chance of this throw being made. So I just really like that. Like the, um, the other play that I really love from Bo's career, like love, love, is when he climbs the outfield wall oh, yeah. and runs across yeah. it in Baltimore. And I interviewed a lot of guys on that play. And two things that stood out for me. Number one, when he was with the Memphis Chicks in AA in 1986 for that season, his only minor league season, he climbed up a wall in Charlotte. They were playing the Charlotte Orioles, and nobody was at this game. There were like maybe 400 people at this game. And Bo climbed a wall there. So guys watching on TV who played with him in Memphis are like, oh, and the other thing is, he was so high up that wall. I talked to guys in the Orioles bullpen, and that the bullpen was right behind the wall, and they leaned back because they actually thought for a second Bo Jackson was going to come over the wall. <laughs> and if people don't know what I'm talking about, if you go to YouTube and put in Bo Jackson and wall, it's the greatest sport. It's one of the great sports highlights of all time. Well, and it is because the one that we have documented, the announcers, they're almost aghast for a minute because it's not that important. Because it's just him breaking his momentum, and all of a sudden you hear them go, 
did he just run up the wall? It, you know, it really is an odd play because it's almost like one of them, like, hey, don't move on. Did you see him just run up that wall? And it's almost like they couldn't believe what they had seen. I'll tell you, I mean, I agree with you 100%. Also, Joe Orslack was the hitter for the Orioles. He didn't even know until 10 years later he hit that ball because he was looking to the first base coach. He, so when he looked to the outfield, he just saw Bo kind of jogging back with the ball. And he always assumed it was a routine play until 10 years later when someone's like, <laughs> I didn't know you hit that ball. And he's like, I didn't know I hit that ball either. And I just want to say the other play that blows me away baseball wise is his first ever major league at bat. Yeah. is September 2nd, 1986. Royals are hosting the White Sox. Game's meaningless. Steve Carlton is on the mound for the White Sox. 321 game winner. And um, on the seventh pitch of that at bat, Bo hits a ground ball, a ground ball to second base. Tim Hewlett fields it, looks up. Holy crap. Bo is streaming down the line. Bo beats it out by two steps. Behind home plate, a bunch of scouts are sitting there. And one of them is Art Stewart, the uh, the director of scouting for the Royals. And he looks at his stopwatch. And he turns to another scout and he says, what did you get? And the scout's like, I got it wrong. And he turns to another scout. What'd you get? I didn't get it right. Well, I got a 3-6. <laughs> other scout's like, I got a 3-6. And the other guy's like, I got a 3-6. It was the second fastest recorded time home to first by a right-handed hitter in Major League history. And that was Bo Jackson's first at bat. And after the game, someone said, what did it mean to you to get your first hit off Steve Carlton? And uh, he didn't know who he was. You, you know what was funny about that play, too? If you, if you watch the video, the announcers just go nuts. Yeah. Because they can't believe it. But I saw Bo do the exact same thing in college when they were playing at Jacksonville State uh, and actually hit the ball to a guy I played high school with and beat it out. I mean, it, the speed from the right-hand side of the batter's box was just incredible. His first – his first. so in, he has something wrong in his autobiography. It's interesting. He wrote that he went <laughs> 0 for 21 with 21 strikeouts to start his career at Auburn. And I, I'm not saying he was lying. He just got it wrong. He actually went two for five in his first game, and his first game was against Southern Illinois as a freshman. And his first hit was a routine ground ball to shortstop that he beat out. And I talked to the shortstop who fielded the ball for Southern Illinois. And all these years later, he remembers coming off the field and saying to a a teammate, saying, who the hell is that? The guy's like, well, that's Bo Jackson. He's like, who's Bo Jackson? And the guy's like, well, he's going to be the greatest athlete you've ever seen. The guy's ridiculous. So his legend began on the baseball field at a very young age at Auburn. Well, and so let me let's let's land on that a minute because you you take this on in in the book. There's been all kinds of controversy whether he truly ran a four point one. I forget the one three. You want four one three? Yeah. Do do you find that to be credible? Yes, hundred um, percent. And here's something I can tell you. Number one, yes, he ran at Auburn, and it wasn't on a pro day. They were um, they were clocking players, and he jumped in and ran the four one three. And I had enough guys who were there to confirm it that I feel comfortable with it. He shows up with the Raiders in 1987. I mean, this is insane. He shows up with the Raiders in 1987. Tom Flores is the coach. They asked Bo to run a 40 on grass in pads. No helmet, but pads. He runs a 419. They don't believe it, and they ask him to do it again, and he runs a 417. He was 230 pounds. Like Tyreek Hill is probably the fastest guy in the NFL. Right. Tyreek Hill has to run a 41740. That's the, 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 the sheer size moving that fast is mind-boggling. He's not a little scat-back guy. I mean, he's a train. And, and to be able to run with that kind of size at that kind of speed, as as you point out, it, it doesn't seem possible. I, just want to say, I mean, the thing is, it's really interesting because you guys are 100% right. Like, nowadays, he's known about from a very young age, right? But he, 
when he was a McAdory, his junior and senior year, I mean, it's just crazy. He won back-to-back state decathlon championships. The second year he did it, he wore his sweatpants the entire time. Mm-hmm. He uh, he sprained his ankle in one of the events during the decathlon, still won by enough that he didn't have to do the last event, the 1500, which he hated, so he skipped it. The day after winning the state decathlon championship, McAdory has a state playoff game, and he um, he hadn't pitched all year. He hated pitching, but he started that game, struck out 13 for the win. The guy stole 90 out of 91 bases in high school. The only guy to catch him was a catcher from Jess Lanier named Sam Doss, who I talked to. And he said um, he caught him. He he just had a high fastball, made the perfect throw. The next time up, Bo hits a home run, crosses home plate, and winks at Sam Doss. (laughs) (laughs) And he also, I just want to say, he also had, he had for a long time the national single season home run record for a high schooler with 20. He won, he set five state individual Alabama track and field records. He's just, there's no, I don't care, Jim Thorpe, Deion Sanders, Carl Lewis, Michael Phelps, whoever you want to say, he's the best athlete who's ever lived. He, he has to be. We'll come back more with Jeff Perlman. The book's called The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson when Rick and Bubba University, the podcast continues. So, Bubba, let's, let's talk um, a little bit about uh, Patriot Mobile. Patriot Mobile really is just trying to say, look, you, you do have choices. Um, a lot of times you're thinking, uh, you know, you may have a certain worldview. You may have things that, that re- you really hold dear. And you're like, you know what? I look out, all the companies that, that provide what I need. I, I, I don't like the way they do things. I don't agree with the, what, what they're doing. But I don't have any choice. Well, Patriot Mobile says you do have a choice. And, and you don't have to compromise any, any, any quality whatsoever when going with Patriot Mobile. Uh, you know, if you want to know, um, you know, you, you, you can go to, to their website right now, patriotmobile.com slash Rick Bubba, or call them at 972-PATRIOT, and you get free activation with with our offer code, which is Rick Bubba. Put that together. Uh, there's also special discounts available for veterans and first responders. Um, you know, they are America's only Christian conservative mobile phone provider, uh, and, and, and they take a portion of the bill and they fund, you know, the, the things like freedom of speech. Uh, Second Amendment, uh, sanctity of life, things that may be important to you. And and if they are, you don't have to compromise quality, and you can be with a company that uh, that you think uh, sees the world uh, the same way that you do. So patriotmobile.com slash Rick Bubba, or call them at 972-PATRIOT. So Jeff Perlman is our guest, uh, the last folk hero, the life and myth of Bo Jackson. This is a great book. Uh, it's a great gift idea. For the upcoming uh, holiday season, uh, so Jeff, we were talking about. So you, you, you said I, I think the four one is real, and you said yeah. the next thing I was going to ask you: Do you believe that Bo Jackson is the greatest athlete that we've ever seen? And you said yes, going into to that to that break. Uh, so you think there's really no debate on that? I don't even see what the debate could be. <laughs> he, I really don't. He could have been an Olympic sprinter if he had you know devoted himself to track and field. He would you know he would run. He wouldn't practice at Auburn. He would just run in the events because he was always doing something else, and he was just dominant. Um, I mean, let's just go over the resume real quick. He wins the Heisman Trophy at Auburn, obviously. He's the number one pick in the NFL draft by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Um, he's a pro bowler in base- baseball and football. The size-speed combination is ridiculous. I mean, the whole – you know, do you – I don't know how how well do you guys know the whole Tampa Bay Buccaneer? It's one of the most fascinating. Well, the one about, that, yeah, about yeah, him yeah. going for the physical and it, uh, and it, it getting he was declared ineligible to play high, uh, college after that. 
And and yeah, 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 the whole thing with the Buccaneers, he felt like they were not straight up with him, and they cost him. Which I think he really loved baseball, and I think you know he he really was mad about that. Yeah, but unpack it again because I'm remembering it that somehow this led to him being not being eligible to finish his baseball career at Auburn. Yeah, it's a crazy story. It's one of my favorites because it's so weird. He's a senior at Auburn, and he has an agent. You know, you're not supposed to have an agent, but a lot of these guys did. He had an agent, and um, his agent. And the Buccaneers uh, decided, agreed that they could, um, he could fly during the baseball season, senior year at Auburn, to get a physical with the Buccaneers, who are about to have the first pick in the right. draft. They were horrible the year before. So he flies on the team plane. Hugh Culverhouse was the owner of the Bucs. He flies on his private plane, gets a physical. Hal Barrett is a coach at Auburn. They're playing UAB that night. And Hal Barrett, during batting practice, is asking players, where's Bo? And one of the players says, uh, he's, um, he's in <laughs> He's in Tampa getting a physical. Oh. And Hal Baird is like, what? What? He's like, yeah, he flew to Tampa on the Bucks plane to get a physical. And Hal Baird is like, please tell me you're kidding. And Bo Jackson shows up and he's like, hey, coach. And, you know, Hal Baird is like, Bo, please tell me you weren't on the plane getting a flying to Tampa Bay. He's like, no, nah, it's okay. The Bucks said it's okay. Well, it wasn't okay. He loses his eligibility. He's furious at the Buccaneers. He's furious at this guy who's representing him. But the Buccaneers, against all wisdom, still draft him number one, even though they know he doesn't want to sign. The owner's like, he told them he wouldn't play, right? Say yeah. that again. He told them that he wouldn't play for him. He said, "I will not play for you." Yeah. But the owner of the Buccaneers was was not good, and uh, he drafted him anyway. The coach was Lehman Bennett. Lehman Bennett was like, "If we if we draft him, you have to know he's going to want to play here." No, he'll play here. They draft him number one, and Bo's agents say you should still go to Tampa and just meet with them. So all right, he goes to Tampa. This is one of my favorite stories in the book, actually. So Hugh Culverhouse, the owner of the Bucs, gets Steve Young, their quarterback at the time. This is way before he became the 49er Steve Young. Oh, yeah. He's a quarterback. To take Bo Jackson out for dinner. We're going to take him to one of the finest steak restaurants in Tampa. And they go out to dinner. And Hugh Culverhouse does this thing where he goes, all right, guys, I'm going to leave you for a minute to talk. And he gets up and leaves. And Bo Jackson leans into Steve Young and he says, Steve, just so you know, there's no effing way I ever signed with this team. <laughs> And Steve Young goes, okay, I guess my work, my work is done. <laughs> well, and then, yeah, well, go ahead. You know, yeah. you go ahead because I must go back to something, finish that. Uh, I was going to say the next day, a bunch of Bucks took a Bo fishing, and one of them was Scott Brantley, the linebacker. And Brantley said to Bo on this fishing boat, he's like, we would love to have you, but you don't want to come here. It's a, it's a, just a disaster oh, wow. zone. You don't want to come here. So. Wow. I didn't know that part. See, that's the book has so many details because of how comprehensive it is, uh, and how in depth you went. But but you know, we go all the way back to high school, and I think you do a good job of trying to show. Because a lot of these people today, they're like, "Yeah, I can't believe this." One of the things that that may go overlooked, and you cover it in the book. And of course, I remembered it because we played them my sophomore and junior year. Um, is that Bo was one of a three back rotation, um, and they didn't even play him that much offensively in, in the games that we played, now the, to kind of give you some background that, that you wouldn't have known, we were in different regions, so the McAdory-Oxford game didn't count for either team. This was those those non-counter weeks where your coach is just looking for teams to play. And, of course, uh, you know our head coach, which was my dad, decided to pick uh, McAdory <laughs> with, with, with Vincent Jackson. And, but there were two other backs that were also outstanding high school running backs. I know one of them, if I remember, Mac had some health problems that shortened his uh, football career. 
but I, and I know that they all were the uh, four by one hundred relay team, and they were they were pretty unstoppable I there. But but he didn't really play that much offensively in the games because he was on a rotation. He wasn't even the only featured back. Why would you play Bo Jackson when you have Edwin Mack and Leroy Mason to right. carry them? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah, it's crazy. It reminds me, actually, I wrote a biography of Brett Favre. And Brett Favre in high school in the Kill, Mississippi, averaged six passes a game because they had a running back named Charles Burton who carried it 30 times. Wow. And it's his dad was a coach. Brett Favre's dad was a coach, and he literally didn't know or didn't care or just was wed <laughs> to something. And it is really bizarre that they had this guy who had become one of the great running backs in the history of humanity. And I don't know if you feel this way, actually. I mean, you played down there at the time period. I do feel like coaches really got wed to their systems. Oh, yeah. And one thing great coaches do in all sports is they adjust to their personnel. And I feel like a lot of high school coaches across America are not very good at adjusting to their personnel. They so this is what we are. We are an I-formation team. We're a five-wide receiver set. And you have this nuclear weapon come along, Vincent Jackson, who in any normal world would be carrying the ball 25 times a game, right. probably out of the eye or at least the wishbone. And he was probably averaging 11 carries a game. Yeah. It's crazy. Uh, oh, yeah. And, and, and that was our experience. I want to ask you, if in, and you didn't put this in there, so I assume it wasn't. There was one legend at one time, local, that Mac, the other running back, and he had didn't he have a blood disorder or something that yeah. shortened his career. But that he's his stats were better than Bo's because he carried the ball more. Uh, yes, and, and that they used some of his stats to help Bo go to college because Bo we, they knew Bo was good, but that Bo Mac wasn't going to get that opportunity because of his health issues. That that Mac actually had better numbers. Well, Mac did have better numbers. Actually, all three of those guys wound up playing college football, but the two others played at smaller schools. Okay. One of them played at Livingston. I forgot where the other one okay. went, but um. I don't know if they added his numbers that I never heard before, but definitely also you have to remember Bo Jackson was playing all over the field. I mean, you had a memory of him kicking like he kicked. It was unbelievable. Yeah. You cover this on page 60 and then Bubba reminded me today, asked me if I told you about him playing defensive end. I can't remember if I did or didn't. If I didn't, I was, that was my fault. You, that would have been another point and I'll tell it to you since we'll have it documented here, but we did not see specialized kickers. I saw the very first one my senior year in one game, okay, in 1982 in the fall. I'd never seen a specialized kicker. It was unheard of, okay? So no one kicked into the end zone. No one. And I certainly didn't see Vincent Jackson as a specialized kicker. He wasn't. He played two positions on the field, running back and defensive end, which is what I was going to tell you about if I left that out. I apologize. But I'm I'm the middle guy in the front, you know the the guy's supposed to keep the wedge breaker from coming through, mm-hmm. and I was actually told get the kicker, okay, and and I was like okay, so I'm standing in the middle of the front line of the receiving team, and he kicked it so far I didn't even drop back. We just stood there as I told you and looked up in the air, and it bounced out of the back of the end zone, and we were like, who kicks it out of the end zone? Now did he we, kick straight on? Or straight on. Style? Straight on. And he tie his toe up. He killed it. I don't remember if his toe was tied up, but he kicked. <laughs> it's like he kicked it into the stars, and we had never seen that kind of kicking before. And and the other thing was he was playing defensive end, and we like you said we ran the triple option as a lot of teams did in the late seventies and early eighties, and so we don't block the backside end. I don't want to get two X's and O's for some of you that are watching, listening to this, but the backside end has no chance to catch the quarterback going the other yeah, way because he's too yeah. far away. And our quarterback was very athletic. Uh, his last name was even quick. Yeah. 
Um, I had to chase him around a basketball court. He was. So you you documented the score, 15-7. to So they shut our offense down. And the reason why is the defensive end from the backside kept tackling the quarterback in the backfield, running the option away from him. And so my, my dad, who was the head coach, calls up to, to, the, uh, to the press box and says, who is tackling the quarterback? And the guy said, you're not going to believe this, coach. That's the backside end. And so my dad says, we don't even block the backside yeah, end. Not really an adjustment for that, is there? And then the guy said, well, you better block this one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, so what he did on defense, that's never even talked about. But he was phenomenal at defensive end. J- Jeff- Wait, I just want to say, I'm being serious about the guy, like, to explain how freakish he was, like, McAdory's track facilities were brutally bad. Oh, like, yeah. They basically didn't have them, right? Right. And he would show up at events having not practiced the pole vault. And he was a big guy. And he'd borrow like the Auburn High School pole, which was built for a guy who was about 170. And he would just soar. He didn't know how to throw a discus. He literally, the first time he threw a discus, did not know how to throw it. Kind of threw it like a baseball. And the second time, he threw it farther than anyone in the state that year. Like he just was a different sort of thing no doubt jeff do you think the way his career ended so quickly and abruptly and before it should have has that helped to add to the mystique of bo jackson times a million i actually think people say and i'm sure you guys think this too there's a lot of like the instinctive thing to say is oh it's such a shame he could have been in the hall of fame he could have been in this hall of fame and i just think his legacy is so much bigger than that like if he had become marcus allen or he had become Gary Sheffield. I think his legacy is bigger this way, where there's a question mark and there's like this enigmatic thing about him. What could he have become? Who could he have been? And we're telling these, also the whole time period thing, like maybe some of these stories aren't as good if we see it on video or if we can tweet out him running a 41340. Maybe it's it's cooler that we're telling the stories like we tell, you know, folk stories or old stories about grandpa. The, you know, I just think it's cooler this way. I really do. We'll come back. We'll finish with Jeff Perlman. The book is The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. When Rick and Bubba University, the podcast continues. All right, so I know a lot of people are looking uh, at the economy and they're thinking, I need to diversify with gold and silver. Uh, and and let me tell you, let's point you to Allegiance Gold. Uh, Allegiance Gold is going to help protect your IRA and 401k with physical gold and silver. Now, if you prefer it, They'll have it delivered right to your door securely if that's what you prefer. You certainly can do that. Their approach is different. They're, they're, you know, nobody wants to hear, well, this is what we do for everybody. Because, you know, even in right here, your your financial situation and mine and the way we're trying to prepare for, you know, uh, long-term may look completely different. And so what they're going to say is well, they, they customize a long-term plan uh, you know, uh, for your situation. And that's why they have so many high ratings. I mean, their, their ratings right now are five stars with TrustLink, AAA rated with the Business Consumer Alliance, and A-plus with the Better Business Bureau. So if you want their best offer yet, go to protectwithrickbubba.com. Put our name together, protectwithrickbubba.com. Get their best offer up to $2,500 of free silver on a qualifying purchase when you tell them Rick and Bubba sent you. And if you want to call them, you can, but mention us, 844-790-9191. There may not be much you can do about the economy, but you can prepare. Go to protectwithrickbubba.com. So we're back with Jeff Perlman. Bubba, we've got about seven minutes. Okay, I want to ask Jeff about this airplane deal 
because I had not heard this story until we were talking about it. And I also wanted to tell Jeff, because I know him being a fan, he, he, I don't know if he had heard this or, or knew about this. Have you ever seen Bo hit a golf ball? I, um, I, I've seen it on video. It's I'm sure in person. It, I, everyone <laughs> always talks about how utterly far and ridiculous his golf uh, drives are. Uh, how would you like to follow him and John Daly in a pro-am? That was a position <laughs> I had. That was sweet. Yeah. Uh, that's funny. Yeah, no. no uh, first I, of all, I can't hit a golf ball five feet, so it, I, it would be very embarrassing. I, I tell you what was funny. Uh, Freddie Couples was in our group one year, and Bo's been in my group several years. And Bo hit the ball. And when Bo hits a golf ball, it makes a sound you've never heard it's before. It's like it's crying out in pain. And Freddie Couples turns to me and says, did you hear that? And I said, yes, I heard it. He said, what was that? I said, the golf ball has never been hit that hard before. But it literally makes a squealing sound when it's hit. I know the golf ball's not alive, but there's something about the compression, the way he's hitting that, that it just absolutely makes a sound you've never heard before. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff. It's amazing. It, it all lines up. The guy was, you know, he uh, he never lifted weights no. until he got to the White Sox and he was in, you know, recovering from the hip injury. He never really worked out super, super diligently. He wasn't in the pool. He wasn't on the Nautilus. Some guys just have it. You know, he just had it. Well, that that was it. And I believe that. I don't know if you – I can't think of the name of the movie, so I'm sorry about that. But it was a movie about a scout, um, and it wasn't some popular movie, and, I, and I, it didn't – some blockbuster. And and he and the point of the, the movie was that there are phenoms that are among us. And I remember the guy playing the scout. He was, you know, he would search every now and then to go out and find the next great player. And he said the difference in the phenom and just the good athlete who works hard. He said, you know, the person who works hard and does the reps and bangs on their craft, they know why they're good. The phenom has no idea why they're good. They were just born to play. And and and, and I think that Bo Jackson is a phenom. I agree, hundred percent. That's actually really well said. And I don't think he. Um... I don't think he'd get like, there's no remorse with him about, oh, I could have been this or I could have been that. Because I don't think he ever, you know, when he was uh, in high school, as a senior in high school, he was drafted by the Yankees in the second round. And uh, there was a scout, Gus Palouse, who tracked him, who was like, this is the best athlete I've ever seen. The Yankees take him in the second round. They would have taken him in the first round, obviously, if they didn't, if the risk of going to Auburn wasn't there. And they call. And he won't answer the phone and they call and he won't answer the phone. And they send someone to knock on the door. No one will open the door. They call Terry Brazil, the baseball coach at McAdory. And they say, we want to fly you and Bo to New York to see the Yankees and the Red Sox play. Uh, and Bo had only left the state of Alabama one time at that point, And it was to, uh, to go to six flags in Atlanta. And you would think any 19 year old high school senior anywhere, you get to go to New York City and see the Yankees and the Red Sox play Yankee Stadium hosted by the Yankees. You can go on the field like that would be a dream. He had no interest. He probably couldn't have named one guy on either teams. He certainly didn't know those two teams were rivals. Like he just he it was all like just like he didn't know who Steve Carlton was after getting his first hit. Right. He was so gifted, so natural, so insanely talented. But it was all just like a walk in the park to him in a weird way. Jeff, real quick, tell yes, us about exactly. the, the White Sox airplane incident. Uh, I was not aware of this till Rick and I were talking about it earlier today. Tell us about that, and did it really happen? Yeah, is that myth, or did it happen? No, it happened. It's 1991. Uh, White Sox are returning from Anaheim. Bo Jackson's on the plane. 
plane catches it. it's an america west charter flight Pla- engine catches on fire the right engine players look out their flames streaking up the wing <laughs> uh, up the side of the plane everyone's freaking out all of a sudden cockpit door opens bo jackson comes out walks down the aisle guys everyone be calm be calm it's gonna be okay it's gonna be okay pilots have it under under control so i have this story but then someone says to me no 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 you have that a little wrong a guy who was on the plane bo jackson was sitting down plane catches on fire he walks up charges up to the cockpit to help them fly the plane now i say in the book maybe both are true because it's bo jackson but what is undeniably true about that ex- experience is they make an emergency landing in des moines it's 3 30 in the morning all the players are shaken they enter the airport there's an empty it's empty and there's a kiosk that's closed that usually sells pretzels and by the side of the kiosk is a keg with a lock on it and bo jackson picks up the keg takes his hand breaks off the lock and starts serving beer to his teammate <laughs> and i always say the great mythology of bo jackson asks where did he get the cups? Like how did Bo Jackson just, just, just come up with cups at 3.30 in the morning? He may have made them. He may have created them on the spot. Carved them out of the seats. Yeah. He carved them out of the seats. You know, what? this has been fun, Jeff, and uh, because you're right. Those of us that were here, it, it, it grew big. Don't misunderstand me. But but it, we, it was just a – and I'm not so sure it wasn't positive that Bo was in an era, like you said, where there wasn't so much hype and so much coverage, I could just see now how they would have him five stars and you know on all these different things and playing in all these high school games all over the country and putting him on and press conferences and hats in front of him and it was almost pure. They waited till college for that. Yeah, it was almost pure the way it all happened. And like you said, there's even something sort of romantic about the way he went away. Uh, but anyway, it's uh, it's an incredible book. Uh, if you think you know the story of Bo Jackson, you you could know more, and you will know more by reading The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. Jeff, I just want to say thanks on behalf of all of us that are fans of Bo for taking the time to go do so much research on this and to tell us some tales that we've never heard before and, and confirming uh, the others. So thank you for your effort on that. All right, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. So yeah, Jeff, pleasure. we'd like to have you back maybe and uh, and break down and cover some of your other books too. Yeah, yeah. We, so. uh, we know we know some of those characters, and uh, we'd like to hear about uh, the stories behind them too. Yeah, so okay. glad glad we made that connection, and also what an honor for you to include uh, me in a very small way in the book too. It means a lot. That's always a fun story to tell. Uh, Jeff Perlman, the book is The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson, available everywhere. Also, Jeff Pearl. Uh, Perlman.com is the website. And thank all of you for joining us for this edition of Rick and Bubba University, the podcast.